Good morning, everyone. How many of you, like me, spent part of this new year obsessed with tidying up with Marie Kondo? Anyone else? Um, I find her to be very inspiring. Um, one of my problems that she discusses as a problem area you might have in your cluttered space is papers. Anyone who knows me, is I, they know that I have all these piles of papers. And so that might explain why not too long ago I was going through some papers and I found a homework assignment from when I was in eighth grade. Just so you know, that was more than just a couple years ago. All right, and so the homework assignment was that we would do a timeline, a projected timeline of our life, how we thought it might end up. And so I took this very seriously and I had my eighth grade graduation date, my high school graduation date, um, and I looked at where I wanted to go to college, what was going to happen. And so when I created this document, I'm looking at it now many decades later, and my, high school, my eighth grade graduation date was right. My high school graduation date was right. I even had the right high school that I went to in Virginia. But after that, my life, was nothing like I had planned it to be when I was in eighth grade. I had expected to go to Penn State University. I did not. I went to Atlantic Union College and met wonderful people. Um, I also expected to, <laughs> I also expected to be married in my 20s and have kids and die of unnatural causes in the year 2054 because I always liked watching cop shows and well, let's add some drama to this projected life that I was going to have. But that didn't happen. I did not go to, to Penn State. Like I said, I went to Atlantic Union College. I did not get married and have kids, but I do have an amazing cat and some awesome friends and nieces and a niece and nephews. They're great. And even though I have had frustration at times, that my life is not going along as how, how I have planned it, I am learning to be content with how my life is turning out. How about you? Does what goes through your mind when you think about what your life was supposed to be up to this point? Are you happy with where you're at? Do you think that the decisions you've made have put you on the right on the right path in your life? Maybe you're disappointed that life hasn't done for you the things that it should have. Do you wonder why God lets bad things happen? And I'm not talking about to the world in general, but I mean to you. Because if you're anything like me, bad things happen to you. Do you wonder why? You experience loss in your life, the sickness, depression. Why does life just hurt sometimes? Maybe you think it's your fault. You look in the mirror and there's no kind words that you have for yourself. The loop that is stuck in your brain is words like stupid and ugly and worthless, unlovable. You wonder, who would ever bother to choose to be in your presence? Why would anyone go out of their way for you? To 
today I want to share the story with you of a man who called himself unworthy. He was an outcast in the terms of organized religion. And he was a man who, even though he is noted for his great faith, felt too unworthy to meet Jesus. And because of that, he never did. If you have your iPhones, your phones, your Bible in there, um, I'm going to read the story out of Luke chapter 7. I read from the New American Standard Version. It's just something that's a habit of me for that version. Um, Jesus, just to give you a little context, has finished talking about the Beatitudes and the things that will make you blessed. Um, he's talked about some parables about having a good character, a uh, faith foundation. And so this is where we pick up in Luke chapter 7, verse 1. When he, Jesus, had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a certain centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. And when he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. And when they had come to Jesus, they earnestly entreated him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further. For I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority. With soldiers under me and I say to this one go and he goes and to another come and he comes. And to my slave do this and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the multitude that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found one of such great faith. And when those who had been, who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. Now this account, which was written by Luke, was for a Gentile audience, for people who were not raised Jewish, did not have that background. There's a second account of the story written specifically for Jewish people with that background. That's in the book of Matthew. And we're going to refer to that a little bit later. But here in Luke, we find a Roman centurion who is seeking Jesus for help. Now, this is not something we would really expect to find in the Bible accounts. Because Jesus' main focus while he was here on earth was ministering to the Israelites in their own context. And Roman soldiers, just in case you weren't sure, they're not Israelites. They are despised. They are a representation of Roman subjugation. They were often recruited from Syria. So very much the two were at odds. And centurions, they earned their status by working up the ranks in the military. They're something that would be considered like the non-commissioned officers we have in our military today. Most individuals served in the army for about 20 years, and military men were not permitted to have a family. They were married to Rome. And so the centurion that we find here, he has such great care for his servant because chances are his servant was the only constant in his life. 
His servant was his family. In fact, the centurion probably moved around so much, he didn't even have a local concubine. Now, all of the centurion's influence, it did not stop his servant from being sick. Because it doesn't matter who we are, how much we have, or how little we have. Life still happens to all of us, doesn't it? And so according to Luke, the centurion sends Jewish elders on his behalf. So the giving of money was one way in which you could gain respect in the Jewish community. And so he had earned their respect. In order to then get the respect of Jesus, the centurion had these elders go on his behalf. It's kind of like when you want to get a referral to a college, you maybe get a letter of recommendation from an alumni, or you're trying to impress someone and you start name dropping. It's the same idea. The Roman centurion had scratched their backs, and so now it was their turn to do something for him. Now, these men attest to the worthiness of the centurion because his actions helped to fund their synagogue. They love what he has done for them, not necessarily loving him for who he is. And the concern that the centurion had for the Jewish people, he shows it in mighty deeds. He knew that he had to work to earn their respect. And so he shows up big. Now centurions, they were often rich. They got paid 16 times more than the average soldier. But even at that rate, it would probably represent years of savings in order for him to pay to build this synagogue. And so these acts of great sacrifice and spending money on their behalf, that's what made the centurion worthy in the Jewish leader's eyes. But he still did not see himself as worthy. I don't know about you, but it's true to me and for me that I am a harsher critic of myself than most people are of me. And this was the situation that the centurion had. On a side note, in Matthew's version, it leaves out the Jewish elders. So it looks as if the centurion is going to Jesus himself. But the who's the focus of the story? Is it the elders or the centurion? It's a centurion. And one of the reasons why Matthew wrote his gospel was to break down stereotypes. He wanted to show that the Gentiles were just as important and worthy as the Jews. And so he left out the elders. But it's the same idea as saying, well, the president made this announcement, but it was actually the press secretary who made the announcement. So there really isn't a discrepancy in the two stories. When Jesus hears about this need, he doesn't put up a fight. Because after all, just like here at Remix, Jesus' mission is people. And so he immediately starts and heads to the house of the centurion. He is ready to heal this servant. He's almost there when he is stopped by the centurion's friends. They ask Jesus to not go any further. They can't come into the house because the centurion feels unworthy. He doesn't want to trouble Jesus by making him come to his house. And we don't know why this is. The centurion has respect for Jesus, but he's probably not a full convert. I'm guessing that he had not switched over to turkey bacon yet or tofu. So maybe there was some pork in his house that would have made it unclean. Um, maybe there were other Romans or people in his house that he thought might make Jesus unclean. And he didn't want to put Jesus in that position. 
Whatever the case was, he was embarrassed to have Jesus come to his house. But what he didn't realize is that no one can make Jesus unclean. In fact, it was when Jesus touched the unclean that they became clean. His cleanliness is what is contagious, not uncleanliness. So we too can be confident of God's ability to thoroughly clean us. We can be sure that God's forgiveness is complete. It's our brokenness, our lack of trust that causes us to relive all of our failings over and over again. We feel like outcasts when we look back at the things that we've done, the way that we have been treated. The Holy Spirit, though, wants to work permanent house cleaning on our hearts. We are the ones who keep bringing back the trash and the ashes of guilt. But they've already been destroyed by God. Divine destruction takes care of all of our guilt. We don't need to worry about it. But when we don't accept our cleanness in God's eyes, our worthiness to be saved, we sometimes are afraid to ask God for our wants and our needs, to share our sufferings and our joys, our struggles. Sometimes we feel that to God, we're just a bother. We ask the same things over and over, right? Lord, help me with my finances, my relationships, with school, with this job. Repeatedly, we ask for healing for loved ones and for ourselves. And when we don't get our answers to our prayers, we wonder, is God even listening anymore? Am I worthy to talk to God? And then, of course, there's the small things. We're told not to sweat the small things, and everything is a small thing, right? But when I can't find my car keys, and I'm headed to a job interview that I've been praying about for months, it doesn't seem like a small thing. And then there's selfish stuff, of course. Lord, help me find a parking spot on High Street. Or if the Patriots could win the Super Bowl, that'd be really great. God, it'd be really nice if just once my kids listened to me, they cleaned up their room when they were supposed to. Seems like selfish stuff. But God still cares. We're not bothering Jesus when we pray like this. I would counter that he is more troubled when we don't let him into all areas of our lives, especially the small stuff. He already knows it all, right? There's nothing we can keep hidden from God. So what are we really hiding? It's, to me, it's part of that whole pray without ceasing thing. There's nothing you can't bring to God. How often might we be blocking God from coming to our aid in a way that's really best because we've already told heaven that they need to stop working on our behalf? Or maybe we've stopped asking the giver of life to be in our life in the first place. How little do we trust the idea of divine love and concern for us as individuals? Not just the greater good, but our good. Maybe it's what we've been taught, that you're not good enough or strong enough or whatever enough for God. But I'm here to tell you right now, that is an outright lie. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16 tell us that it is because 
of our human weakness, that we should be confident in our prayers and have no hesitation in coming before the throne. We are to lay it all out to God. The centurion rejects Jesus' offer to come to the house citing unworthiness, yet he still recognizes the authority of Jesus. And he knows about authority. Roman centurions were the model of discipline and obedience. He calls Jesus Lord, Master. This man, a leader of 80 to 100 troops, sees himself as inferior to Jesus. This Greek word authority, excusia, means power of authority or influence and right. The liberty of doing as one pleases, physical and mental power. It's the same authority that Jesus gave to his 12 disciples to cast out demons and to heal. It's the same authority that Jesus gave to us when he asked us to go and make disciples of all nations under his authority. It's the authority and power that was witnessed at creation when God spoke a world into existence. And the Roman centurion can see in Jesus the power to speak life. But now comes a strange part of our story. And it's something completely unexpected. Jesus is surprised. He is surprised at a show of faith. And it is this Gentile, this Roman centurion, this other, who is showing the faith that the Jews are lacking. Just like the wise men who came to see Jesus at his birth, we have an outsider who sees the truth. This man who deemed himself too unworthy to be visited by Jesus grasped what the Jewish elite could not, that the one true God, the God of Israel, the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, was personally present and active in Jesus of Nazareth. Matthew's account gives us some extra details of Jesus' response, and I just think this is fantastic. It's in Matthew chapter 8, starting at verse 10. Jesus' response to the centurion. Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And I say to you that many shall come from the east and the west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom shall be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What Jesus is emphasizing is that just like this Roman centurion outcast Gentile other, believers from the east and the west, non-Israelites, will be in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is inclusive and not exclusive when it comes to salvation. It is the state of one's heart that brings them to the intimate fellowship of the table, not their pedigree, not their denomination. We worry about troubling Jesus with those things that prick our hearts. But the real issues that trouble Jesus is when hard-hearted so-called believers live as if salvation is a country club in which only the elite are invited. Craig Bloomberg, in his commentary on Matthew, shares this insight. Such great faith, which Jesus mentions, does not refer to a particular quantity, but a quality of faith. One that is both Christ-focused and universal in scope. 
Those who claim to be Christians can also be excluded from the kingdom if they lack either of these two elements. Those who deny people of certain races, classes, or creeds access to God's message and ministry in this life, they're going to find themselves excluded from the presence of God in the next. In awe of this Gentile's faith, Jesus speaks, speaks life with instant and complete results. While many saw that the servant was indeed healed, none of them saw Jesus heal the servant. They could have explained it away. Healings were common. Long-distance healings, not so much. The centurions and his friends who went to see Jesus could testify to the healing power of Jesus' words. Yet due to the centurion's feelings of worthlessness, he denied all of those in his household, including himself, the opportunity to meet Jesus. Have we, secure in our own faith, alienated or cut off people from God? Unfortunately, I know of too many churches where I would be afraid to bring a friend who does not fit some predetermined, arbitrary mold of what someone is supposed to be like to be in church. I am beyond grateful that that is not the case here at Remix. But for many, if not most churches, they are not safe places for people who live with the human condition. Our perceived uncleanness blocks us from embracing the Jesus that is reaching out, headed our way to cleanse us with the Spirit. And so I want to challenge you today to take a look at how you view yourself in the mirror of Jesus' eyes. Is that view holding you back from sharing Jesus with others? Is it holding you back from a more intimate relationship with the divine? Let the creator of the universe speak life into your soul and allow yourself to be fulfilled by the desires of God's heart for you.